The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, we're back for part two of the discussion that I had with Daniel about our favorite film villains. Uh, This time we focus a little bit more on female big screen villains. Uh, Part three should show up fairly soon in the next couple weeks, probably as a sort of a midweek bonus episode. Hoping to get Paul in to add a little bit to that one. So look for that one. Hope you enjoy this one. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay, so actually we'll go back to a female character here. Baby Jane Hudson, Betty Davis, uh, from Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962. One of the, if, if not the first, one of the classic examples of the Hollywood system destroying a person mentally and to the point where she's abusing her sister. Basically a failed movie star who uh, has gone psychotic and is uh, abusing her crippled sister. I, I, I always found this performance really great. And I always thought it was kind of disturbing and uh, unnerving for me to watch. Maybe not Betty Davis's greatest performance, but it's definitely in one of her top five, as far as I'm concerned. And I really like that movie. A film, again, another one that has been kind of quoted and redone in different media over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll throw another one out there for you. Million Dollar Baby, Margot Martindale, the, uh, who played the mother, who played um, uh, Hilary Swank's mom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have uh, seen it recently, or you remember it, um, I have, I have, I haven't seen it recently, so I kind of sort of forgot it. But now that you're mentioning it to me, yeah, because I, I do remember Clint Eastwood basically bumping heads with her entire family. Yeah, well, the uh, the story of the film is that I mean, you know, not to. I mean, I'm not going to do the plot, but, I mean, basically, you see her earlier in the film when uh, Hilary Swank has uh, won some money from fighting and buys her mom a house. Mm-hmm. And her mom's like, well, I can't take this because, you know, like, like shit's all over this accomplishment. Because, well, they're going to take my, my welfare money away if I take this house. And so it makes Hilary Swank feel bad for not thinking about, like, you know, what are you, stupid for doing this, you know? Yeah. You know, I'll I'll just say that is, it's such an amazing performance because it, it you know not to get into my personal life, but it reminds me of people I've known, um, particularly um, you know I grew up kind of the lower middle class in the American South, and uh, wow that character just brings you right back. And then at the end you see uh, that you know when Hilary Swank is in the hospital and about to kill herself, the family comes to visit, but after they go to Disneyland, it's just such a slimy evil, but such a human thing, you know that. You know, for me, it's just like when I think of villains, that's just such a right up there performance for me. Well, um, from my own personal experience, I live in a part the, of Nova Scotia. Great, the great metropolitan oasis of uh, Nova Scotia. Yeah, I, I live in essentially the Bible Belt of Nova Scotia. So um, I, I do see people like this. I see people who pump out kids as financial gain, as an excuse for financial gain. Child credit tax, get a job, make money, give their money to their parents. I, I, I see, I've seen that multiple times, so I can definitely understand the sort of mentality and the mindset behind those characters, and I 
yeah, incredibly goddamn disgusting. And it's a, it's a product of society and it's a very real product of society. And that's what makes those characters in that film so believable and so incredibly disgusting at the same time. Uh, just as long as we're talking about this actress, I'll just uh, bring up also, we're not, this isn't a TV podcast, but uh, she was the uh, main villain in, uh, I think, season three of Justified. You know, it's it's set in Kentucky. It's it's you know another kind of show about the American South based on an Elmer Leonard short story. Yeah, um, phenomenal TV show. One of my favorite kind of you know pulp pleasure. You know, I don't want to say guilty pleasure because it's not, but it's really well written, a really great show. And she is uh, kind of the, again the, the kind of the lead villain, the the big bad of season three, and she is amazing as a, a more traditional villain in that sense. You know, because she is you know kind of a you know, the head of a crime family and all that sort of thing, but truly phenomenal actress, and I and I would love to see her in more stuff. Ironically, as you go through the list, as I was thinking about uh, villains and great villains in kind of more modern media, so many of them are in TV shows, just because I think, you know, we, we've kind of moved our kind of discussions of moral ambiguity and about, like, what evil is. You know, we've moved away from that in the movies because so many films are, you know, huge budget and need, you know, a ton of money and, you know, that sort of thing, whereas uh, I think TV with its longer form, more dramatic storytelling is really where artists are going to tell these stories these days. So, you know, you could argue that, like, Walter White or um, John Hamm's character, whatever his name is, in Mad Men, you know, is, mm. is, is, a, is a great villain character. I mean, Tony Soprano is, you know, is kind of the classic version of that now. So um, the, the, like, fractured male anti-hero is no longer in movies. It's on TV. So, yeah. again, just, just throwing that out there. I guess that's a good segue into another character I'll pick. This is uh, from an Australian film. It's uh, Janine Cody, played by Jackie Weaver in Animal Kingdom from 2010. Really good crime drama. It has uh, Guy Pearce in it as well as a a police officer. But Jackie Weaver's character is essentially this uh, matriarch of this crime family. She plays it like just the sort of doddering mother character. Like she's very unassuming to some degree. Like she just feels like... Oh, she loves her boys or whatever, but she is deep down. She's the kind of person who will let one of her kids be killed without any thought because it, it would uh, hurt her family and her enterprise to some degree. Like she can just drop family members just like that without a thought. Um, the, the main plot revolves around her grandson and whether he's going to out his family to the police o- o- over their criminal criminal activities. And she eventually comes to the point where she's like, kill him, just kill him. And then she gets to another point where she wants to invite him back into the family without any sort of thought. It's just no, no moral compass at all on her. She's just totally devoid of morals at all. It's just whatever, whatever is benefits her and her family, at that time and at that point in time. And it's a really great performance. And she just kind of fools people. She just kind of tricks and fools people thinking she's just this innocent kind of mother character who's trying to hold her family together and do what's best for her boys when she really, she's secretly kind of the real boss in that family, you know, like the real kind of villain. Yeah. And another one I haven't seen, don't worry, I'm writing down all these titles. So I, I <laughs> good. go back and watch them, but um, no, it sounds amazing. And I have heard of this film and I've heard it's really good, but I just haven't it seen is. it. Yet. Let's uh, let's do something a little more goofy fun. All right. Uh, another woman just throwing it out there. Uh, Sharon Stone and basic instinct. Spoiler alert. She actually was the killer because the uh, the yeah. this, this kind of seminal, which I use in, in knowing the pun, seminal <laughs> film from uh, 1992, the uh, one of the uh, crown jewels 
of the uh, Joe Astrahas uh, slime machine. Uh, you know, <laughs> the um, you know, wow, this is a film I haven't seen in a lot of years. It's probably really terrible on uh, many social justice issues, but wow, what what fun that film was when I saw it when I was uh, you know a, a young budding uh, manlet there. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, what a what a delicious performance uh, from a uh, you know very <laughs> the the source of countless parodies and uh, really Sharon Stone's career was built on on this film and I think yeah. she is uh, it is a uh, a great performance in a probably a not very good film so we'll just it, leave it at that. it's it's uh it's it's kind of a bad film but uh, I'll, I'll I'll argue the sequel which I have seen is even worse <laughs> and, yeah no I have what the sequel uh, you and know. the sequel is almost like a parody of the first film to some degree like it just so overtly throws all the same shit right in your face right and like 20 years later at that yeah so, you know. but oh she still looked good or in not that one too 20, but, but you know anyway yeah but she still looked great in that one, but uh, her career kind of went downhill after, well, after a couple films after that. But so, yeah, but uh, yeah, that's that's a good villain, uh, a, a lesbian psychopathic killer, tricks a cop, mind games and shit like that to the end. Yeah, yeah. and Wayne Knight is in this film, you know, if you <laughs> if you remember, uh, you know, Newman is sitting there talking yeah. about uh, talking about Michael Douglas and eating pussy too bad. So uh, that's, <laughs> that's what I remember about Basic Instinct. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, uh, that's really a film. Again, we should cover just for the uh, just for the hell of it. Yeah, um, we could do I, that one. I thought we should do like erotic thriller month or something when we're doing sex comedies because I kept thinking of like, oh yeah, we should do like Basic Instinct. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, basic just, Basic yeah. Instinct and uh, yeah, actually good segue into here we go. Glenn Close from uh, as Alex Forrest in Fatal Attraction. There's another mm-hmm. and another mm-hmm. Michael Douglas film. <laughs> another Michael Douglas film. Yep. But she she plays a much more, uh, I guess, convincing psychopath in a much better movie than Basic mm-hmm. Instinct. Definitely, I'll just leave it. Films at, are compared a lot. I mean, yeah, you know, it's kind of one of those. Anyway, sorry. Just because it's Michael Douglas and he's with a crazy, right. he's with a he, he's with a crazy bitch. He's with a crazy bitch. You know, all women are like this. This is just what women do. That's they right. get clingy and then they. That's... They destroy your life, you know. That's just how life goes. Yeah, yeah but uh, great, great performance. Uh, convincing psychopath from Glenn Close. I, th- I think the movie still holds up. I think it's still a pretty good movie, honestly. I haven't seen that in a number of years, so, um, you know, again, definitely talk about doing that one. Another fun villain. I'm just kind of doing some fun ones for a while. Get away from the uh, more serious. you got to put Crystal Walken on this list somewhere, right? And I don't even think I have him on any of my picks. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's such he's such like that iconic like dad guy in in a lot of movies. But uh, the one that I put on my list is actually the Rundown from two thousand three. Oh yeah, it's the one with uh, Dwayne Johnson and uh, Rosario Dawson, um, who I have I, I have on the record on this podcast is having a, a deep attraction to uh, Miss Dawson. He is so like he knows he's playing a parody of himself. Mm-hmm. The movie knows he's playing a parody of himself. This is uh, one of those just goofy, fun action movies that actually is not ridiculously stupid, yeah. except in terms of the way it treats the laws of physics. So, yeah. um, um, if there is a guilty pleasure movie on this list, I mean, The Rundown is kind of one of them. Um, this is one that kind of caught me off guard about how much I enjoyed it. You know, Christopher Walken is so doing Christopher Walken in this. Check it out if you haven't. Yeah, no, that that actually is a, a a lot of fun. That film, I I quite enjoy it. That that's sort of the point where Christopher Walken's career has sort of gotten into where it's like 
everyone knows him for playing bad guys and he's got certain mannerisms down now and everyone expects them. And he was just basically playing it up in that film. He was just playing Christopher Walken as a bad guy in that film, basically. I have an out and out comedy if you'd like me to, uh, to just throw that one in. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, ben Stiller in Dodgeball, A True Underdog Story. <laughs> oh, um, shit. Dodgeball, A True Underdog Story is one of those amazingly fun movies that, like, if you're talking about politically incorrect R-rated comedies, mm-hmm. this, this, is, this is the movie that has the line, and I quote, Would somebody catch a goddamn ball... You look like a bunch of retards trying to fuck a doorknob out there. <laughs> yeah, and throwing and this, is, uh, this is Rip Torn, so you know. Yeah, Rip just... Torn, uh, Rip Torn, notorious uh, alcoholic and great actor at the same time, and <laughs> throwing wrenches at people. <laughs> yes, um, this is such a fun movie. Uh, you know, this is one of those like you, you know. It is horribly politically incorrect, and I don't care at all. It is it is a mm-hmm. lot of fun. This is and Ben Stiller is it, it, the amazing thing is he kind of I think he co-produced this film. He's one of those guys who just kind of shows up. He's doing the kind of ridiculously stupid Ben Stiller character, mm-hmm. but it doesn't great here because of the rest of the movie is kind of on the same wavelength he's on, and yeah. he's not expected to carry everything. But he's just he's also like an idiot, but everyone in the movie knows he's an idiot <laughs> and treats him that way, and that's what makes it amazing. So um, he is endlessly quotable and um, brilliant. And uh, if you're talking about great comedy villains, that's the one I put on my list. So oh, that's good. I like that pick actually. I can go for I Christopher Walken performance. Vincenzo Cocati from True Romance in 1993, and it's just kind of a bit part for him. It's only uh, like one about ten minute scene with Dennis Hopper. But uh, he provides enough menace to let you know just why our protagonists are running for their lives uh, from the mob in that film. Because he just does this sort of verbal sparring with Dennis Hopper, which is absolutely beautiful. Just watching two really great actors just bounce off each other. And I I just love it. It just just builds and builds and builds to a really great climax. And actually kind of builds to a bit of a joke at the end in a way. And it all works. It just works really well. It's probably one of Quentin Tarantino's best written scenes between two characters. Mm -hmm. And it's just great because both characters are believable. (laughs) There's parts of them that are likable and not likable too. So it's really great. I just, I just love watching Dennis Hopper try to goad this character into shooting him right away. Like he's basically, that's what he's doing. He's, he's, He's trying to piss this guy off and goad him into shooting him so he doesn't have to say anything about where his kid's going. And eventually he succeeds. He, he kind of, he wins. He gets his brains blown out, but he wins because he doesn't reveal where his kid's going. Although, uh, right after that, <laughs> the henchman looks in the fucking fridge and pulls a post-it note off. Oh, hey, here they are. <laughs> Here's where they went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, True Romance is a film that uh, I think is, has been kind of forgotten it existed in that time period right before the kind of indie revolution, and so it still kind of looks and feels enough like a studio film that I think it, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. Great film and a, and a great performance, so uh, I agree. I decided, again, I'm only going to put one Tarantino uh, film on this list and one villain, and there are so many great ones because, you know, really you think about, like again, that kind of indie film movement 
And um, so many of those films don't really have clear villains, but Tarantino's films definitely. I mean, he's got so many great ones. My favorite, Christoph Waltz from Inglorious Bastards. You could argue the protagonist of the film and the main villain. And you could equally argue that Brad Pitt is an evil fucker in that film because he's a terrorist. And mm-hmm. uh, such a such a, a great film that works on a lot of different levels. And Christoph Waltz is amazing in it. Um, and if such you haven't a... seen that film, go watch it right now. Like, turn yeah. off this podcast and go watch that film. It's on Netflix Instant. You can watch it right now. Such a such a dis- basically dis- distillation of the slimy Nazi shit character from all kinds of movies like he, he kind of reminds me to a degree of um there there's this ss character in where eagles dare from back in the 1960s or maybe it was the 70s i can't remember when that movie was released but um there's a character in that one as well who is very much this, uh, of the same vein sort of like an ss officer who is poking his nose in everyone's business and trying mm-hmm. to manipulate things and yeah christoph waltz is just so good in that like right up to the end where he's trying to bargain his way out of basically getting murdered. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, his fate is worse than death, arguably. Yeah, just a a great modern screen screen villain as far as I'm concerned. Definitely agree. Uh, He won the Oscar for that one, and Mm -hmm. rightfully so. Um, I think one of the, the things that sells it, I think, for me is that, you know, one of those villains who doesn't think he's a villain, at least at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Again, a film we should probably discuss in some detail later on. Arguably, I mean, at the at least at the beginning of the film, he thinks his actions are justified. And really, the character is sort of, if you imagine what Sherlock Holmes would be like if he worked for the Nazis. Like, this yeah. is exactly who this character would be. So, um, again, great, great performance, great film. Go check it out. That's all i got to say. For yeah. now. You're Good warned. Stuff. I will have much to say about this film later. <laughs> Hey, here. Okay, here's a fun one. Khan Noonien Singh, played by Ricardo Montalban from Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Yep. No, I, uh, I decided not to include any Star Trek or Star Wars films on my list, but uh, that would have been the definitely the one I, I picked. Either that or the Borg Queen. It was one of those two. Yeah. But no, Khan. Uh, and and fuck you, Benedict Cumberbatch. Like <laughs> leave it at that. Pretty much. Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch is a perfectly fine actor. I uh, again, as a as a Star Trek fan from uh, way back, uh, I have serious issues with the J.J. Abrams films. They don't exist in my mind. Uh, there is only one con. Yeah, definitely, see. definitely. Yeah. Um, great performance. Uh, it basically kickstarted the real rise of the Star Trek film franchise. Great villain, Ricardo Montalban was just fucking awesome, and he, he he went over the top, he chewed the scenery, but he did it in such a delightful manner that worked with the film. He was going up against another guy who chews the scenery so well, and the amazing thing is they never went face-to-face in the movie at all. Like, it was over viewer screens, and that was it, but they, they never went face-to-face. Uh, William Shatner and two great scene chewers delivering a great fucking movie Somehow. <laughs> yeah. Star Trek Two is, uh, I mean, one of those, you know, kind of sci-fi classics. Uh, you yeah. know, there's nothing else to say about that. And it's such a great villain role. Performed while uh, basically showing lots of man pack as well. So you, you got oh, God damn. And, and, that. Yeah. and that was real. That, that was yeah. not prosthetics at all. That, yeah. that man was built. <laughs> this, is, this is before there was CGI, my friend. You know. Yeah. <laughs> If we're going for scenery chewers, I have a good one here. Jack Nicholson, A Few Good Men. One of those films that I've, I watch this film whenever I see it on. It's just uh, one of those things. Jack Nicholson is so, uh, you know, this, this kind of political villain. He's an army guy or a military guy. He's a Marine, sorry. 
apologies to our military listeners. Absolutely phenomenal performance, and uh, people kind of reduce the film sometimes to that kind of ending courtroom scene and mm-hmm. the uh, you can't handle the truth and all that sort of thing. But he is a force of nature through the entire film, and uh, check yeah. it out if you haven't. And such um, a such a smarmy, self assured prick. Like he, yeah. another another villain, he thinks he's totally right. He did nothing wrong, mm-hmm. and. He just and throws that proves it to be his downfall, you know, right there. You, you know, know? He, he just throws it in your face because the guy is just so confident that he's right about everything. He shoots himself in the foot in the court, and that's it. Yeah, great performance. Well, here's a, here's another military one I can bring up: Gunnery Sergeant Hartman by Arlie Ermy from Full Metal Jacket, 1987. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> again, if you haven't seen Full Metal Jacket, watch Full Metal Jacket. Arguably, no heroes in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of all villains in this film. Uh, you could also just say Vincent D'Onofrio as the private pile is is equally a villain. Um, but mm-hmm. no, Arlie Ermey is uh, amazing in this. He improvised much of the dialogue in the uh, in that kind of opening sequence that you uh, that everybody remembers him for. Yep. Um, and he's he's great. Where are you from, son? Texas. Hell, there ain't nothing but queers and steers from Texas, son. Yeah. Which one um, are you? Yeah, no. Yeah, it's it's a great performance. It's kind of weird because this is one where it's like maybe he's not necessarily a villain because you kind of think this sort of thing is prevalent in the military. This is the kind of uh, browbeating and training that a lot of people got in that sort of that system. So he's almost he might be a villain, but he's also kind of a necessary facet of that that sort of system. Honestly, you can argue once he's killed by Vincent D'Onofrio, that movie is over with like the the second half of the movie is just kind of boring and doesn't work as well Uh, a lot of people i mean a lot of people make that observation and again this is something we could talk about in some more detail in a future Mm -hmm. future episode but um i i'm something of a defender of the second half of full metal jacket i do kind of understand that you know it it is sort of the movie really goes downhill after you kill the the two best characters in the film Uh, and you're following kind of the the boring other people that were in the uh the unit arguably at least that first half is you know the whole point is the dehumanization you know and maybe you know that character like we don't get to see him outside that setting you know imagine it you know imagine if you'd gotten to see him at home with his family yeah he's not you know like no this is a job this is something i do because i feel like this is something i have to do in order to you know to train these recruits you know the the strength of the film in a lot of ways and of the performance is that uh you know uh, from my understanding again i'm not in the military um but from my understanding uh drill sergeants are not allowed to do this anymore (laughs) (laughs) um you know i've read a lot about you know kind of the uh the modern drill sergeants have plenty of ways of making your, your life miserable Without uh, engaging in these kind of practices, yeah. um, you know, again, not to uh, not to be politically controversial, but you know, there's certainly the element that the the dehumanizing the dehumanizing you know influence of, of the military is kind of one of those fundamental problems with the military system in general and the military industrial complex and the kind of endless wars that we seem to just always be engaged in and the fact that mm-hmm. we have you know, ten thousand military as an American, I will speak to this. We have ten thousand military bases all over the world and. Maybe that's not something that we should just treat as normal and average and okay. Yeah. You know, and, and you could say that this character gives light to all of that. Um, of course, we also, thinking of the real world, Arlie Army also spent the rest of his life basically trading in on this character. And, and mm-hmm. he, like he had the show on the History Channel talking about how awesome military gear was. And uh, 
you know, uh, doing the, the kind of rah-rah American exceptionalism military might thing. You know, maybe Kubrick meant it in a way that Army Army didn't. So, you know, who knows? Um, uh, yeah, from what I understand, uh, Army and Kubrick didn't see eye to eye quite a, quite right. all that much. So, yeah. No, no, not at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, great performance. I agree. Not on my list, but um, really one I should have thought of. Moving in a different direction, I'm just naming stuff now. Uh, unconventional choice here. Bob Gunton from the Shawshank Redemption. He plays okay. the warden. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the only thing I'm going to say about this performance is uh, there's one line, or am I being obtuse? Uh, yeah. And, uh, man, do I remember that line so many, so many times. You know, when I think of that film, a lot of people think of the, the great soaring music, that Frank Darabont direction, the shot mm-hmm. of him coming. I think of the line, or am I being obtuse? Um, such a, such an amazing uh, performance, kind of a small role, but uh, he is uh, third credited. I was I had to look up his name because I didn't know the actor's name. And um, you know, if you Google the Shawshank Redemption and then look at the cast list, he's right after Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins. So uh, mm. he is a understated ultimate prick representation of kind of the institutionalized corruption in that mm-hmm. kind of environment. He's a he's a Bible banging self righteous asshole at that. Yeah. Uh, so there's all kinds of different things you can actually take from his performance and his character. And yeah, I agree. Really great villain. Really great villain. Cause, uh, I fucking hate him. Watch that movie. You fucking hate that guy. He's just such yep. a piece of shit. Well, and, uh, another, another actor, Clancy Brown in that, yeah. uh, film. you know, you could kind of argue that he's a villain, but you know, he's, he's kind of not. I mean, he's 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 kind of the just taking orders kind of guy, you know. He's a he's a fucking um, coward. He's a coward, that guy. In the yeah, world. no, like he's, he's, he is. You know, he's, he's a bully with authority, and he's a coward. Yeah, yeah. This this is that whole uh, what is it the uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment, you know, mm. all over again, which uh, had its own has its own issues in the psychoanalysis of psychological research, but we're not going to get into that right now. But <laughs> um, a great villain performance and a, and a great film that uh, I don't see people talking about as much as maybe I used to, but uh, worth a revisit if you haven't seen it lately. People take it for granted, and they just kind of they kind of think about Morgan Freeman's speeches and stuff, and use it as memes and crap like that, yeah. you know.
I'm going to pick Dr. Christian Schnell, played by Laurence Olivier from The Marathon Man in 1976. And I absolutely love this performance. Uh, basically, all you have to say is, is it safe? And <laughs> Yeah. No, that's... Uh... William Goldman writes about the uh, making of this film and the, because he wrote the novel and then the mm-hmm. screenplay in uh, his book, which I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, um, Adventures in the Screen Trade. And you should absolutely check that out if you haven't. Amazing film, amazing villain. Great, great Nazi villain. Um, just the fact that the guy was a dentist by trade, uh, it, it just it just weaves itself into that caricature of, you know, like, educated, uh, intelligent people supporting the Nazi regime and putting those skills to really bad uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see, you see the way he treats Dustin Hoffman, tortures him, but also gives him like really great bedside manner at the same time. I think the best scenes are him walking through the Jewish quarter of town where you can see he's visibly uncomfortable and afraid for his life and where he gets recognized as being, you know, the former Nazi that he was or whatever, you know, back in the day from one of his victims who recognized him. It's, it's fucking chilling. Like that, that's there, there are scenes in that film. Like it, it's a really good taut kind of, like spy thriller in a way but at the same time there's really horrifying scenes in that film that just bring up all kinds of things in the past that you've never seen but you kind of feel that they've happened and you kind of experience them at the, at the same time I really love that film so yeah no it's an amazing film and uh, one of those that, uh, that made uh, Dustin Hoffman a star so, mm-hmm. um, yeah worth seeing um, one of those Again, probably not forgotten, but one of those gems from the 70s that people maybe haven't um, seen as much. 80s or 90s? I will say say 90s. All right. Uh, Spoiler alert for L.A. Confidential from 1997. (laughs) James Cromwell. Yeah. uh, L.A. Confidential. Uh, We mentioned James Cromwell in our Revenge of the Nerds episode uh, because (laughs) he was a dad there. But, uh, you know, James Cromwell, one of those actors that you've seen kind of a little bit of everywhere. L.A. Confidential, one one of those films that kind of made Guy Pierce a star and mm-hmm. uh, Russell Crowe a star. Yeah. And um, one of those just great Kevin Spacey performances, and people forget how good James Cromwell is in this, because yeah. he is one of those uh, phenomenal, another one of those institutionalized evils of police corruption. Um, and you don't realize that he's the problem. I mean, it, it's such a, such a once, you, once you've seen the film and then you go back and watch it again, you're like, oh yeah, that guy's totally the bad guy. But um, certainly when I saw it the first time, I, I didn't like twig on that. Maybe maybe I, you know, I'm not always good at like picking out the villain ahead of time. But, no, I, um, I, was, I was the same first time I watched it. He, he, he gives off this very sort of kind, matriarchal, grandfatherly performance uh, where you trust him. You, you think he's doing the right... He, he seems like a stern cop who believes in doing the right thing and, you know, supporting his subordinates and stuff like that. But by the end of the film, you discover that he is essentially the spider at a web of corruption that has gone back for years and years in the department. And it all comes to light in that house where he's basically plugging bullets from the Russell Crowe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, I know. I mean, the moment when he shoots Kevin Spacey's character. Yeah. Um, is, is, I mean, that, that you know, oh... And the Rolo Tomasi moment. I mean, um, the, another one of those films that just kind of lives on in my memory. Um, such a phenomenal film. Uh, again, uh, the neo noir. Such a uh, such a great uh, mind for these kind of characters, and um, a film that arguably has no real heroes, but definitely has some villains. And mm-hmm. James Cromwell is definitely the the big villain of that piece. So, um, worth checking out if you haven't. Although I just ruined it for you, so you know. <laughs> well, if, if you haven't seen that movie by now, I don't know what the fuck you're doing with your yeah. life, honestly. Um, 
But but worth seeing, even if you know the ending. Honestly, like it, it really is a phenomenal film. Mm. I'll pick just two that I can um, I can breeze over really quickly. I don't really have a lot to say about, but they're very iconic at the same time. Uh, first one I'll say is Jack Wilson, played by Jack Palance and Shane from 1953, as the uh, gunfighter who's hired to basically confront Shane and bully all the people in the in the town. It's one of the first really iconic. Jack Pound's performances is the one kind of established him as a bad guy. Um, his skeletal facial features uh, are given great effect in that film, the way he smiles and the way he coldly just guns people down, the way he uh, goats uh, a farmer into pulling first so he can shoot him, drawing on him. Really, really good, cold performance. And the same time he's a professional, he's basically just hired to do that job. And I'll also, I'll also mention Tommy Udo, played by Richard Widmark from Kiss of Death in 1947, which is a great noir villain performance. This is a guy who kicks an old lady in a wheelchair down the stairs. And that, that was in the 1947 movie. So yeah, that's no, all I have to say about that. <laughs> you, you, could do, you could do a lot in uh, noir. That, uh, you know, you, they got away with a lot in some of these films. Uh, you know, no, uh, phenomenal film. Uh, again, mm-hmm. one that I had uh, forgotten until I mean, you know, I I've seen it, but it was kind of oh fuck yeah, of course. Yeah. Don't really have anything to say to either of those choices because they're both you. You said all you need to say, I think. Oh, we'll do the forties uh, since right. you were doing the forties. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck, Double Indemnity. Okay, yeah, yeah. And as long as we're in black and white, uh, Fred McMurray is also in that. I put him down from the apartment. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you've seen that film or not. I but, saw it a uh, long time ago, so I yeah, don't no. remember the details uh, too well. He's the, he's the uh, uncaring boyfriend of uh, Sharon McLean's character, who's the mar- married man. See both of those films. Uh, it's it's worth it's worth seeing. Uh, but Barbara Stanwyck in uh, Double Indemnity. I mean, she she goes along with the kind of insurance agents plan to 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 murder this guy um she's not leading the charge the way that you know we kind of mm-hmm. talked about in um a simple plan uh bridget fonda is but yeah. i think a, uh equally kind of chilling performance and uh again these noir pictures are just <laughs> you know yeah. name a noir picture there's a great villain in it it, it pretty much is that that yeah. um, that level of obviousness to some degree my list's getting pretty small now um yeah i think we're winding down just a little bit but um yeah. you know Fuck, I'll, I'll throw it an obvious one. Also sort of a, almost a neo-noir in a way. Um, Kaiser Soze slash Verbal Kent, played by Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects, I think is a pretty damn good one. Uh, uh, I'm just going to throw in seven. I put Kevin Spacey on my list for seven. Ah, well, yeah, there you go. That that was, that was I was picking whether I was going to pick uh, Verbal Kent or his character in seven. I went for Verbal Kent just because the character's more dynamic. Uh, there's more going on with the character in that film where he's mm-hmm. he spends the entire movie confusing the police officers who are interrogating him with these elaborate stories about himself and about the people he was involved with. And at the end he tricks everybody and walks away. I I'm still, I'm still so confused how people did not get this movie back in the day, how they did not realize uh, like Leonard Malton went out of his way to say that the movie didn't work. Like what fucking movie did you watch? Because everything in that movie was logical. Everything worked as far as I'm concerned and it's a great payoff to a great film. I can honestly, I can even still watch that film today, even knowing that Kevin Spacey's Verbal Kent um, is Kaiser Soze. I still enjoy it because even though I, I know the I know the payoff, I just still enjoy watching him trick all these people of his performance. It's great. 
this is definitely a film that we're going to need to cover at some point because I kind of feel like The Usual Suspects is a one-trick pony. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of feel like once you know the ending, it loses a lot of its power. I have I saw it kind of knowing what the twist was originally, but it oh, still yeah. kind of works when you see it the first time. Um, it's still like you, you 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 know for me it worked. Rewatching it, it just doesn't it doesn't work for me at all. Almost, I mean, like not on the level that it's supposed to work. Um, I like Brian Singer as director. I think the performances are are uniformly great all the way across the film. Mm-hmm. It's technically well accomplished. I don't have an issue with the film. Kevin Pollack, I just love him and everything. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, that's a film we probably need to, to discuss because I, yeah. I actually I don't think it works on rewatching in the way that I, you obviously do. So um, I'll just leave it at that. And uh, just to discuss Seven, I think the, the, the joy of that one, the reason I picked that one is because uh, Kevin Spacey is such a, a presence in the film before he even shows up. I mean, he yeah. really doesn't show up until... You know, the last, I think, third of the film, maybe even quarter yeah, of the film. something like that, yeah. Um, you spend so much time building to him that then when he shows up and then when you see kind of what, you know, I, I have a, a difficulty, you know, just because it's been done over and over again in so many bad films since then of the the brilliant criminal mastermind serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the chess player who uh, can outthink everybody else in the room and, you know, has built all these brilliant puzzle boxes that even yeah, the cops, exactly. like, as they're solving the crime, like, he's just predicting everything. Um, but I think Seven is pretty much the best example of that genre. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the earlier examples, it's it's kind of ultimately about the, the kind of loss of moral center of the city and of the, the kind of world that we live in, much more so than it's about, like, this individual killer. So, you know, worth worth rewatching if you haven't watched it in a while, uh, that kind of first brilliant David Venture direction. Yeah, for that, uh, you, you bring up a good point. These, these mastermind serial killers, uh, that's, that's sort of the reason why I only sort of like the first Saw and totally hate all the fucking sequels that I watched. Yeah. Like, just so boring and bad, I just can't buy them. Okay, well, I'll just, I'll throw out uh, The Shark and Jaws and The <laughs> Thing. Nice. Yeah, um, and The Thing from The Thing in 1982. I think I'll, uh, those those are ones you don't really have to, to talk about in much detail because it's much more about how the human characters relate to those two monsters, but... Yeah. Um, no, I agree. Uh, but yeah, sure. Yeah, they're they're great uh, monsters as as far as villains go. I will say Hal Nine Thousand, voiced by Douglas Rain in Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, um, basically a sentient computer system who is all about accomplishing the mission, whether it involves killing everyone to get it done or not. That was the second one I wrote down, actually, when I was going through this. The very first one was Orson Welles in Touch of Evil. The second was Hal 9000, just to let you know. Right. Uh, and I was I was holding back on that one, but, you know, that's a, that's a great... Um, I mean, that's a great performance. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. you, you know, you kind of pick the two inanimate objects, but I think Hal 9000 is such a, a character, and it, and it really is kind of like... The point is, I mean, I the novel, I read the Arthur C. Clarke novel uh, growing up many times. It's kind of one of those books that I kind of grew up with and um, still think is a brilliant novel for what it is. An inhuman mind will have inhuman logic and will not necessarily value life in the way that we do and mm-hmm. will uh, make decisions that we don't agree with. And arguably you could kind of talk about, you know, impersonal you know, larger social systems and that sort of thing, making those same kinds of inhuman decisions. So, uh, no, How 9000, a great character, a great performance, and a great film. Yeah. Another uh, classic one that um, I can't believe we haven't mentioned yet. I'm not sure if this is on your list, uh, but um, Alan Rickman is Hans Gruber in uh, Die Hard. Ah, he was on my list. 
Shit, where did he go on my list? I had him on my list. <laughs> oh, there he is. <laughs> right on. I'm having trouble with my list tonight. It's on a text file. No, uh, that's yeah, fair. yeah. Uh, yeah, great, great villain. I agree. Die Hard is much better than its sequels. Let's just put it that way. Oh the yeah, original yeah. film. John McTiernan just directed the shit out of that, and um, that performance is. If you're talking about the kind of old school Hollywood bad guy, that's it right there. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And he's he's the perfect counterpart to uh, Bruce Willis's character because Bruce Willis, the you know middle class working stiff, this guy is an urbane uh, European Euro trash aristocratic kind of educated guy, mm-hmm. and it's it, they just they they play off each other so well, they just bounce off each other so well. Yeah, so yeah, great great pick. I will go uh, Nurch Ratchet, played by Louis, Louis Fletcher from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, I think that is one of the greatest female villains ever on screen. She is just this absolute domineering piece of garbage that basically dominates and treats the occupants of a mental hospital as prisoners and dehumanizes them even further than society has at that point. And it gets to the point where she gives Jack Nicholson's character a lobotomy to quell, quell his rebellion because he's a character who arguably shouldn't even actually be there. And that's one that, you know, so many of the female villains that that I can think of, you know, um, so many female characters, particularly female villains, are motivated by mostly male screenwriters, let's be honest, mm-hmm. and directors, by either their their um, role as mothers or their role as, as sexual objects. Um, yeah. And we kind of find that over and over again in the noir pictures, but um, Nurse Ratchet is one who is, you know, driven by her function and by her personality. Like, it, there's no reason that has to be a female character. That's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I applaud that. That's a that's a great one I didn't think of. So awesome. I'll throw out another one of my female ones, uh, Kathleen Turner in Body Heat. Okay, I've never seen that. Oh wow, that is uh, Lawrence Kasdan uh, wrote that. That was the uh, movie he. Basically, he wrote The Empire Strikes Back in order to get to make that movie. Um, That is a a phenomenal film. Uh, I will not give it away. It's um, really a classic noir picture. Um, It's uh, remembered, I think, for uh, its sexual content as much as it's remembered for anything. Um, Not necessarily like like overt nudity, although there is some of that, but it's, it's remembered for just how sexually charged so much that is um it's also got william hurt and uh uh, mickey rourke and in a small role um that you you know before you know before mickey rourke kind of went off the deep end but um (laughs) you know uh check that out i'm I'm glad i have one on my list you haven't seen that was uh i was i was looking for that you know so yeah body heat it's a classic check it out and i won't say anything else about it cool um i'll just throw a couple quick ones here uh Mm -hmm. try to get through this list um I'll say uh, Tommy DeVito, played by Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, I think is a great Napoleon, small man complex, gangster mm-hmm. character, vicious psychopath. Could probably go into more detail, but I won't, won't bother. I that was, one was going to be on my list, but I knew you were going to pick it, so I left yeah. it I'll mention um, a great Vincent Price performance, which is Matthew Hopkins from Witchfinder General in 1968, which is one of his... Uh, most understated performances as this, you know, witch hunter, uh, religious, dogmatic, power mad piece of garbage who goes around basically accusing people of being witches and having them killed for his basically for his own personal gain more than anything else. And uh, it's one of Vincent Price's great performances. Uh, really evil motherfucker, but he's not he's not doing that more sort of uh, theatrical 
Vincent Price that people might be familiar with in some of his films. He, he's very restrained and very, very good. Very, very good. It, it's sort of the performance I sort of send people towards when I say, you know, people think sort of doubt that Vincent Price was a great actor. And I go, look at this performance and tell me he's not a great actor. I mean, this is bullshit. Yeah. Um, I'll mention another obvious one. Uh, don't really have a lot to say about it uh, unless we review the film at some point. Uh, Roy Batty, played uh, by Rutger Hauer in Blade Runner from 1982. Great performance. Uh, that's one of those ones where you can argue he's not quite the real villain to some extent. Society is more the villain in that film, but because he's a product of that society and he's a product of his creator, too, because he's an android. I mean, he, he definitely kills anyone who gets in his way towards his personal goal, but just about everyone else is just as at fault as he is for the well, way he's he is. he's one of those, like, completely justified villains. Like, yeah. it's not that he's not a villain, it's that he is completely justified. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because if you were in that situation and you were about to die, and, you know, it was because somebody had built you to have this lifespan issue, um, you would probably make many of the same choices, honestly. Yeah. Particularly against, I mean, you know... Um, against an oppressive power structure. I mean, you know, everyone that he runs into is someone who is working for or with this system that made him the way he is. So uh, Blade Runner, not a perfect film, um, you know, but uh, it depends on which one of the, what, 18 different cuts of that film you want to talk about. I'll throw in uh, Robin Williams, one-hour photo. Oh, yeah, shit. Fuck, that one totally went over my head. The uh, directorial debut of Mark Romanek, who's a uh, fashion photographer. He did a bunch of uh, music videos. And uh, in some ways, the film kind of looks like a music video, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Robin Williams, this is kind of the heart of his, like, I'm going for Oscars at this point mm-hmm. um, era. And uh, he is uh, amazing as this, uh, you know, quiet monster. Um, yes. Yeah. He works at a one-hour photo developing place in a retail shop. Brilliant character, brilliant performance. Check it out. Yeah, I agree. If you haven't.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>